I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. If this is your first time hearing our podcast, it's a simple idea. We've all had educators in our lives who helped shape who we are. And we want to hear about the educators who inspired you and the teachers in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this show, whether teacher, coach, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So we want you to be a part of the show and tell us about the person who comes to your mind when we say that. Email us with your nominations and story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today on the show, it is a special edition celebrating some of education's most underappreciated folks. And for this episode, we're renaming the show Substitute Teacher's Lounge. Kevin Beverly is a retired teacher and current substitute teacher, and we talked a lot about what it's like as a sub during the pandemic and how weird it is to walk into someone else's building, someone else's classroom, and reestablish yourself as a teacher after decades as an educator. And we also had a great chat about his time coaching cross-country, what's special about connecting with kids through running, and his time as a journalism advisor for student news, teaching kids how to talk to people and get the story. And we also have some tremendous dad jokes that go along with that. I'm not going to spoil it, but you got to listen for those. Before we get to that, I have another conversation I want to share. The Illinois school mask mandate has been in the news and been in flux a lot over the past month as the pandemic and pandemic policy takes new shapes. I always joke about the old NPR politics podcast catchphrase, things may have changed by the time you hear this. Well, a few things have changed since we did this story, the most pertinent being that the Illinois Supreme Court has since weighed in and denied the governor's appeal, but it didn't really matter anyway because in light of their decision, Governor Pritzker just ended the school mask mandate himself. The rest of the story still holds true though and gives you a good idea of how we got to the point we're at right now. From an Omicron wave in early January forcing schools to close due to the volume of positive cases to ending the school mask mandate in only about a month or so's time. So here's my conversation with University of Illinois education policy professor Paul Bruno, who helped me explain the legal battle on school masking. Honestly, my first question is is pretty straightforward, which is as of our speaking now, is there a school mask mandate in Illinois? I think there's two answers to that. I think one answer is it depends who you ask. And the other answer is for practical purposes, probably not. Right. So it depends if you mean like across the whole state is there one or is there one at your particular school district? I think there's even mixed messages at the state level from different branches of government giving different answers to that question about whether, for example, the governor still has authority uh, to issue something like a mask mandate, given that the proposed rules were both rejected by some of the courts and by legislative oversight bodies, and definitely at the local level, different people giving different answers. Uh, primarily, I think, based on what they would like the answer to be. Right. But all of that adds up to say that, like, as of now, masks are are optional at, you know, hundreds of different schools across the state and others have them required. Anyway, I, I wanted to kind of just rewind to the beginning of this month to try to give people a little bit of context as to how any of this happened. So a Sangamon County judge, right, granted a temporary restraining order to a group suing to end the mask mandate. So there's over 150 districts were named in the suit. And, and, you know, that doesn't mean 
that the districts themselves, right, were joining the lawsuit. It's mostly like parents and maybe some teachers from those districts, right? Uh, yes, that's correct. And they're suing on the grounds that the governor basically doesn't have the authority to mandate that students and staff wear masks in schools, along with, you know, requiring unvaccinated staff to get tested regularly and, and close contacts of infected people to stay home. They're just saying he doesn't have the right to do that. Uh, yes, I believe that that is right. And I believe that was based in part, maybe, on rules about when and under what circumstances you can exclude students without various sorts of due process protections. In the lawsuit, the temporary restraining order is granted. And again, like we mentioned, this causes confusion because not every school district is named in the suit. So, you know, people I'm talking to are wondering, like, does this apply to us? You know, is, is the mandate suspended in our district, too? I think there are definitely school leaders who want local control, uh, particularly in when they uh, disagree with the rule that is being imposed. I think there are also a lot of school leaders who have appreciated that the governor has been taking the heat by imposing a rule that they would like to impose but don't want to uh, impose themselves. And so the Illinois Attorney General appealed the restraining order. And during the time that, you know, we're waiting for the appeal decision, the Illinois Department of Public Health issues a new emergency rule requiring masks. And they were like, we're going to try to keep these rules as consistent as possible, at least until the appeal. But now here we go. Here comes another character, the state legislator. Their joint committee on administrative rules steps in, which is a group of both Republicans and Democrats and strike down the new IDPH rule. They say, you know, the judge has already spoken and you're blocking due process by trying to pass new rules before the appeal and that ends the emergency rule. Now the judge in the appeals case looks at that and says the lawmakers voted pretty much unanimously to let these rules expire. And so this is a moot point. The rules you're appealing to keep aren't even in effect anymore. This is completely dismissed. The governor says that he's taken the case to the Illinois Supreme Court. Right now, individual schools can, if they want to, still have their own mask mandates, right? Correct. And the, the appellate, I believe it was the appellate court that issued the decision, was very clear about individual school districts still having leeway to take their own precautions, including mandates. Now's when you have people that you know, might come to your school board meeting to, to yell at you about it. And realistically, they are coming to school today. Uh, in a situation where there's either no rules or it's not clear what the rules are. And so it's not just a, I say it's a little bit even worse than that, which is it's not even like uh, there's going to soon be school board meetings that get very contentious. It wouldn't surprise me if you're already seeing uh, schools and classrooms across the state getting a little more contentious. Is there just anything else about this that people need to know to maybe make this whole situation make a little bit more sense to them? One general piece of context is that in a lot of ways, this uh, debacle highlights a very common challenge in American education, which is just that it's so localized. Uh, and that means it's very hard to coordinate uh, in situations like this. Uh, and I think that's part of what gives rise to all of this confusion and uh, in a lot of cases, all of this, uh, this tension. Different districts are going to have different comfort levels with what kinds of rules they're willing to impose um, locally. And in many cases, they're going to have a lot of tension, I think, in particular between their staff and some of their families who might have diverging views about what kinds of rules they would like to see in place.
Like I said, in the past week or so, the Illinois Supreme Court dismissed the appeal and Governor J.B. Pritzker ended the statewide school mask mandate. But that doesn't stop school districts from imposing their own. Okay, so now it is time for the main segment for my conversation with the wonderful retired teacher and current substitute teacher, Kevin Beverly. But anyway, we were talking about being a substitute teacher during the pandemic and that you've been retired for a few years now and now are having to try to figure out all this technology and work through that. Yes, it was it was a challenge. I retired at the end of the 2016 school year and I've been subbing for six years, the first four years of which were, were pretty uh, fun and interesting and routine. Um, actually went better than I had ever really thought it would for a sub. Uh, but it was because I subbed in the same school uh, that I had taught in for all those years. So I knew a lot of the kids. I knew all the teachers. I knew the administration. And it was a pretty nice, seamless transition. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic hit, and it threw a monkey wrench into everything. At first, none of the school districts uh, had the kids in school, so I just stopped subbing. There just was no work yeah. to sub. And then they came back in various Forms, you know, uh, as you've probably heard, most of them were just online uh, using Google Google Classroom, which is kind of a Google form of Zoom, and uh, the teachers had to had to adapt to that uh, mode of teaching. Um, but what I did was, since DeKalb wasn't back in person yet, uh, and some of the surrounding school districts were, I went ahead and subbed in three other local school districts uh, last year. I subbed at Genoa Kingston, at uh, Burlington Central District 301, and at Sycamore High School. Um, which was really cool for me. I wouldn't have planned it that way, but I got a chance to see what life was like in these other schools and uh, how people ran things. And I found that in some ways our kids and Genoa's kids and Sycamore's kids and Burlington's kids are exactly the same. <laughs> They're exactly <laughs> the same. Well, it's it's got to be fascinating for you, right, though, as as someone that's been teaching for years and years and years that – not only starting off as a substitute, I imagine that it feels a little bit different, but like you said, you're in the same building, you know a lot of the same teachers, even some of the same kids, but now you're subbing and you're subbing like in a different building with all new people. Does it, is it feel weird to kind of have to like reestablish yourself as a teacher after doing it for decades? It really was weird. It really was weird. Um, the fun thing for me was that Genoa Kingston, that's where I started my career in 1985, Oh, no kidding. They're in a, yeah, 85 through 88, I was at Genoa Kingston in the old high school, which is now Genoa Middle School. So, so that was interesting. There were still, there's still a couple of teachers, excuse me, not teachers, uh, admin around that I, had, that I had known from back in the day. But anyway, it was strange, yeah, to get into the new school and, and uh, the kids don't know me, I don't know them. But I have to give credit to, to, the, to the admin and to the faculty there, as well as the kids, that it was, it was pretty painless. Uh, there were very few problems in any of those three other schools. There was a different dynamic in, in some cases that I was able to say to a kid, for example, oh, you, did you run, I see you have a cross-country T-shirt. You run cross-country, yeah. And I coach cross-country in DeKalb. So I could, I could say, hey, did you go to this meet or were you ever at this school? And so that was kind of fun. Um, one other quick little anecdote. I, I work at the scorers table at DeKalb High School for a lot of the basketball games, boys and girls. Awesome. And recently the girls' uh, sophomore team was, was playing at DeKalb High School, and a couple of girls came over to check in at the table where I was working, and they give their jersey number, and I tell them, okay, next whistle, we'll get you in the game. And one of them turned around looked at me and said, Mr. Beverly, you were my sub at Sycamore High School last year, Mr. Majerus's class. And so that was pretty <laughs> fun, you know, that was a neat experience. But yeah, that was interesting because I had to start all over from scratch. And yet in Sycamore, Mr. Majerus was teaching class from home on like a Zoom, a Google Classroom. 
So I was in the room with the computer on. He and I could see each other and talk to each other, and I could see his kids that were in the room uh, and, and kind of be the, uh, the conduit between the two. So that was, right. weird, that was a weird experience, but that was fun too. You were saying that you felt in some ways in that experience less like a substitute teacher and more of like a substitute facilitator, like you're playing point guard between the teachers mm. to bring it back to basketball referencing. Yeah, references. There you, go. you have to be the John Stockton in between this, <laughs> in between the, <laughs> the teacher who is, again, like teaching from home via Google Meet and the students that are there in person and you're trying to fill in the gaps in whatever way you can. What does that normally look like? Just like answering questions or, or tech stuff? Yeah, that's a, that's, a great, that's a great way to put it. I'm the conduit. I'm the, I'm the point person. Um, yes, it can be any of those things. In some cases, uh, if it's a subject area I'm comfortable with, I can actually help the kids with the content. I can help them with the grammar or the essay or um, social studies and science if I know enough about it. Um, I always tell the kids in math, you're probably in trouble if you're waiting for help from me. Because, <laughs> yeah. Other than freshman algebra, you're not going to get much from me. And then, of course, the things that subs always do, which is, Sit down, get to work, quit throwing stuff. <laughs> the normal, the normal stuff. I always wonder if it's harder during the pandemic to be a substitute teacher than it was before. Like, obviously, it's different for you because you have all those years in the classroom of experience. But, like, if you want to be a new sub today, like in a, like a short-term sub, like you just want to you know, get some extra work in or, or whatever, and you don't have any teaching experience, like a lot of times because of the pandemic – those people will have training, but it will mostly be like online and they like might not have in like in-person classroom in front of them until it's like all happening live. I wonder how you how you do that. That seems tremendously difficult to, to be a sub these days. I think you're right. The one advantage that a young person might have, say, for, for example, starting as a sub nowadays, is that I, I'm not averse to learning technology, but I didn't grow up with it. And I've, I found that it was kind of fun to learn it, actually. And what I also found that was really gratifying is that kids will help me if I act like, you know, I want to help you on this, but I don't understand what this thing is. And, you know, other kids will jump in and say, oh, I know what to tell her. Do this, do this. And I, and I say, wait, 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 go back. Show me, show me what you just showed her. <laughs> right. Hey, everyone, we, all the young people, we've got experience running tech support for our family, like trying to get the Wi-Fi to work. Yeah. <laughs> And kids are, uh, I, I got to put in a good word for the kids. They really are not only adaptable and resourceful in many cases, but they are really willing to help. And in most cases, kids, they, they want to make this work. You know, they don't want to be stuck twiddling their thumbs all day. And, and if, uh, if one kid in the class figures out what Mr. Fontana meant by this, then the whole class gets it because we can all share, the, share that knowledge. So it's, that's kind of cool. Again, I give all the credit in the world to today's teachers because they have taken all of these curveballs thrown at them and all the resistance. And in some cases, outright hostility by some people. And I, I, I saw a guy on, on Fox News saying that we're back in class and we're back in person now because the teachers finally agreed to go back to work, um, which could not possibly be further from the truth because it was so much harder to, to teach from home. So much, you know, two or three times as hard. Uh, for teachers to work from home than it has been to be in class. And don't forget, teachers went into their profession because they like kids. They want to help kids. They want to be right. with kids. They don't, they don't want to sit at home and look at them over a, a computer screen. Right, if they're lucky enough to look at them and not have a completely black screen, right? I, I think it's so hilarious, the, the concept that was floated around by a lot of people that, like, 
teachers somehow like wanted to be remote, like it was preferable to in-person, like for the time and place for safety and community transmission, it made sense to go online, but like nobody was like, oh, this is better than in-person. No. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and no, you're right. It was, it was necessary. I, I understand it. We had to do it. We did it and we got through it, but it absolutely wasn't better for anybody. It wasn't better for the kids. It wasn't better for teachers. It wasn't better for parents. It wasn't better for admin. And, and so when you hear this nonsense on, on certain, you know, media outlets, it's extremely frustrating, but, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely not true. Teachers are very glad to have kids back in school. Right. Well, it's you know it's interesting that you mentioned how getting to go to different school districts it stood out to you that the kids are you know the the kids are the kids they're they're pretty much the same. And I'm interested though, like seeing kids for all those years pre-pandemic and now during the pandemic is like especially now that we're like two years in. Do you feel like they're still kind of the same as normal or is there kind of just like the weight of everything? Can you kind of feel that in the classroom? Yeah, I, I definitely feel it. Um, the kids who are happy, well-adjusted, um, active, involved in things, good home, good parents, good, good uh, support systems in place, those kids have taken it pretty well in stride for the most part. Of course, they've, mm -hmm. had, their, they've had their setbacks. But those kids who are strong and capable and, and sound are, are still are still there. Right. It's the kids who maybe don't have all of that. Maybe they come from a, a more difficult home life or they aren't as socially connected in other ways. Maybe they don't play sports or they're not in clubs or whatever. Just many, many things that help a kid be a well-rounded, well-adjusted and happy and, and safe, uh, safely um, adapting and functioning person. This has definitely still, yes, it has definitely still thrown them for a loop. I see kids in class who have, you know, we have to wear the mask because that's required. So they've right. got the bottom half of their face is covered. But now they have, uh, I've noticed a lot of kids pull their sweatshirt hoodie up or they put their hair uh, down over their eyes or, or whatever. I, I see a lot of kids who I can, all I can see of them are their eyes. Hmm. Strangest thing. And I, I think they're kind of, I don't know if I'd say withdrawing, maybe retreating a little bit uh, from being right. back into the back into the swing of things. So it's going to take those kids and us, the adults, of course, a little while to get get all that uh, worked through. And uh, we're we're making progress, and we'll continue to make the progress. And as time goes by, I think that will get better, not worse. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, there's there's definitely been a toll on on the kids from having been at home for a whole year or year plus, actually. Yeah, you know. It's interesting the way that I've had it described to me by other teachers, including just on the, one of the last few episodes of this show, was that you know normally in a classroom you have a whole range of students who are doing poorly and then students who are just getting by, students who are doing okay, pretty good, and students who are really excelling. And they were saying that the only difference between that and now is that that, that middle class is a little bit thinner now. Now there's just a lot of kids who are really struggling and a lot of kids who are, are doing well and there's not a lot in the middle. I think I would agree with that. Right. And it's got to be kind of hard for you as a substitute, though, because like you're going in there trying your best, but you're also you know that you're only going to be there for a limited amount of time. So you're like, I can I can try and I can and make a difference and help out with all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, in, in two weeks, I might not be here. It makes it a little more tough to have those connections. Exactly. That's exactly right. The kids, the kids 
who see me today might not see me again for two or three weeks in another class, you know, other than maybe walking by me in the hallway. And yeah, so I, so what I try to do is if I do see that kid who doesn't want to make eye contact with me, which is not normal, you know, that's, 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 that's sad. It's, it's hard to see that. Um, then I, then I will maybe, if I, if I think it's kind of a, of a rough case, I might actually, cause I do know the counselors and I know the social worker and stuff and maybe pull them aside and say, Hey, do you know about this girl? Or do you know about this boy? What do you know about them? But for most, I'm guessing for most subs, um, they probably, because they're not in a building where I, like I said, where I spent all my years, they don't maybe feel as, as inclined to do that. So the kid might just kind of slip through that crack and it's not a, it's not a, it's not a dig at the, at those other subs. They're trying to do their job. Like, you know, like, like the best, the best way they can. Yeah. And like some people literally might not have the, you know, uh, professional development in social emotional learning. Like, yeah. And so they didn't, they didn't, maybe have the, the, the skill set or the training to, to notice those things or to, uh, to follow up on them. Um, but of course I have, I've, you know, I've had kids go through high school, my, my own children, if anything like that had ever been going on, I'd want, I'd want any adult that noticed it to try to reach out, you know? So that's why, that's why I figure every kid there is somebody's child. Yeah. I mean, how, how often do you sub? Is it, is it pretty much every day? Because obviously we know that there's a huge lack of substitute. There's a giant shortage every district's dealing with. I'd, I'd be willing to bet that if you wanted to do it every day, you could pretty easily do it every day. Yes, you're, you're right on both of those. You could do it every day, and I am there almost every day. Really? I did it because I, I, I had retired, and uh, I did that for a couple of valid reasons, but I didn't want to get away from the, the kids and the school environment completely. And I really love the flexibility of being able to, once in a while, if, if I just can't be there for a certain day, I'll just not take an assignment that day. But, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. I, I, I love the people I work with, the adults. Uh, but I also get a lot of energy from the kids. I, I get a kick out of them. I, I, I still laugh almost every day. I'll laugh at something a kid does or says, sometimes when they're trying to be funny and sometimes they're not. <laughs> trying to be funny but you know i try and i don't laugh at them i i laugh about them you know affectionately i guess i could say uh but they bring yeah they bring a lot of energy they do i know it's a cliche but they do kind of help me stay young and yeah. uh i feel like i can still help them which is so so nice to have a feeling that if i had a kid that day that was struggling with either a lesson or uh you know what what happened to their to their uh oh i don't know what happened to their chromebook what you know i can't think of their locker open <laughs> You know, any one of a number of things that I can do or just I'll see the kid at the basketball game and say, hey, you know, I, uh, I noticed you uh, I noticed you had more rebounds last night. You know, that was great, you know, and and uh, just talk to them about their lives. And it's nice to have all that connection, you know. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, especially when you're subbing in a classroom that's not your expertise. Like you said, if you're subbing for, you know, someone's geometry class and maybe that's not exactly your forte, that the thing that really helps is is kind of the experience that you have and more of like the teaching intangibles, right? Not just the strictly academic stuff, but just connecting with people, you know, the, just the experience that you're bringing to it. You're exactly right. And, and that's the, uh, that's the gratifying part. When I was an English, I was an English and speech and journalism teacher during my career and I loved it, but I never got to see a kid do a science experiment or, or hear an orchestra kid tune up their violin and then start playing I said to one, one, one day I subbed for the orchestra teacher and I told these kids, you guys floor me. You know, you're out there in the hallway <laughs> late for class and throwing your, a pencil at your friend and being goofy and, and crazy. And then you come in here and you guys sound amazing. I, I can't believe it. You know, it's really, it's really cool to see these other aspects, these other sides of kids. 
that I didn't get to see when I was in the, in, you know, in the same room every day, all day. So that's been neat. And, and I really do uh, appreciate that. I know you're getting the full range. You're getting orchestra. I mean, I, I've had, I've had the chance to, to go into some classrooms where it was like the, you know, the jazz band. And I was like, Oh my God, these kids are like 14. She's playing jazz clarinet like that. It's amazing. They're, they're good. They're yeah. really good. <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> to me because I, you know, I, I love that kind of music and, and uh, I like the other stuff too, but um, these kids that, like I said, you would never guess that about them, but they're, there they are. And they're very serious. You know, they're very, they come in, the, the music kids come in, they get out their instruments, they start tuning, they're not tuning around, they're, they're focused, they're into it, they're, they're, they're there to, to take care of business, and it's really cool. Okay, so one of the last substitute-related questions for you, Kevin, is especially early on after you retired and you started subbing, we talked a little bit about how it's kind of a weird transition, but like, was it odd walking into a classroom just fundamentally that like wasn't your classroom? Yes, that was the, that was probably the strangest thing is to walk into someone else's room and uh, and realize that like you said I'm there for a one shot deal at least for, for you know for the near future I wasn't going to be back and um, and I didn't know how it would feel. You always hear the horror stories about how horrible kids are for subs, and I know that in some cases they are. I know that. And I've seen a little bit of that now and again, if it was a kid who didn't know me. Um, I mentioned earlier that I coach at the middle school. I think I said yeah. that to you before. I coach at the middle school. So, so in any given room I walk into, there might be three or four kids in there that had me as a track coach, as a basketball coach, as a cross-country coach. So that was nice. But if I ever walk into a room where, you know, especially like you said when I first retired, where it was not my room, not my kids, not my subject. It was very strange. I was a fish out of water for the first time in years, 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 years. So um, I just had to try to uh, just basically go back to the things that I, like you said, uh, have that have that mindset of making connections with kids and um, just being myself and, and reaching out to them. I usually start off most of the class periods when I sub, most of the time, I start off with a stupid dad joke. Oh, really? Do you have an example? Oh, well, sure. The, uh, you know, the, the duck walks into Walgreens and he goes over and picks up a tube of chapstick. He comes up to the counter and puts the chapstick on the counter and the girl says, will that be cash or credit? And the duck says, you can just put it on my bill. <laughs> oh, see, that's, that's exactly what we're looking for. Yes. That's, that's a dad joke, right? And so I do those. Yeah, I do those all the time. And, and there are some kids who wish I would never do it again. And there are some kids who think it's funny and some kids who just think I'm stupid and they just move on. But, you know, it's, uh, I try to break the ice, you know. Well, that's, you know, how much a polar bear weighs, right? Like, enough to break the ice. I like that one. I'll, can I, if I can use that. Oh, absolutely. You can have it for free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you're still coaching at the middle school? Yeah. So I coach uh, cross country and track, and uh, I've switched from basketball to scholastic bowl, which I, which I enjoy. So scholastic bowl is fun. Uh, but yeah, track in the spring and cross country in the fall. Right. And scholastic bowl is basically like trivia, right? Right, right. And, and so you get a... a, a another cross-section of the kids, you know, or another segment of society there with the, the kids who love doing stuff like that. And those, those kids are a blast. Right. You have to feel like Alex Trebek all of a sudden. <laughs> and, and I, I try to, uh, they, they're very competitive. They're very competitive. So sometimes they have to rein them in a little bit, you know? Yeah. So you taught cross track basketball. I know that you probably can't pick a favorite one to coach, but if you could, uh, tell me about some of your favorite things about, about coaching. Um, my favorite things about coaching are the, the connections with the kids. That's easily, easily, hands down, it's my favorite part. It's, it's just finding out about the kids and what's going on in their lives and what, what, what they 
what they think is important, what they like and don't like about life. And I just get to watch them be natural around each other. It's kind of like a wildlife expert who watches the, you know, the lions or the chimps in the wild and gets to see them, <laughs> their natural habitat. Because in class, kids have to behave a certain way. And they have to sit down, be quiet, face front, you know, that kind of thing. And that's not natural for kids. But at cross-country practice, I, I would say if I had to pick one, it would be cross-country. At cross-country mm. practice, we are, you know, we're all just, we're just runners. And we're just going to be there together. And we joke around and we go do our workout. And, and I get to watch them be natural kids. Um, and, and I love that. The other thing I love about cross-country is the kids who go up to that are truly, truly motivated by the sport because there's no glory in it. Oh yeah, my my brother ran uh, cross, and uh, I'm a, I'm a distance runner. My dad's I hope he's listening to this right now. He's ran like 35 marathons. Like he's an absolute terminator. Like still to this day in his wow. 60s, running 20 miles a day. Like not a day, but like for training runs. He's he's ridiculous. I've done I've done two half marathons. That's where I've tapped out yeah. at this point. Well, but that's pretty I'll good. There. That's pretty good. No, that's amazing. Your dad is a warrior. Yeah. Well, then yeah, you know, you know, distance yeah. runners are kind of a different breed, and uh... oh no, we're sickos for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember my brother when he was in high school. His cross country team, they're like team T-shirts, and I, I'm sure this is something that other cross teams have used too. But on the back of it, it said, "Our sport is your punishment." <laughs> our sport, yeah, our sport is your sport's punishment. I love that one. And it is, and I when I when I coached uh, basketball, I never would use running as a punishment because I didn't want it to be that. I would I would use other things, but I always thought running is fun. It's, it shouldn't be punishment. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I wish I would have had you as a coach then. Well, that's you know that's a debate for another day. I, I don't I don't believe in using a a, an act, a physical activity to punish. I think punishment, if it's needed, which sometimes it is, not often, but if it's needed, I always felt like playing time was the currency that I could control. That if a kid wasn't you know, either wasn't acting like a good teammate or he wasn't showing up for practice or he wasn't this or that, I would just say, well, then that's going to cut into your minutes, you know, on the, on the floor. And that usually got their attention as well as anything else I could ever think of. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and going back to the cross thing too, I think that you're right. Like it is a very specific breed that wants to do running and distance running particularly because I think so much of it as much as it's physical is if, and I know this is just such a sports cliche about it being like 50% mental or something, but like there's a very specific mindset. The first thing I have to do with middle school kids is because they haven't run. Many of them haven't run distance before is I have to convince and persuade them that it's okay. If you're uncomfortable while you're doing the sport, it's going to, it's going to be, I wouldn't say it's going to hurt, but it's going to be uncomfortable. And I have to get you comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely it does. So you have to learn that your body is gonna is gonna rebel a little bit, but it's okay to tell your body no, we're gonna keep going. <laughs> I, I wanna again one of my mantras that I use when I'm running is like I am here. There's like a very like being present and in the moment about running or like and really being like yes, thank like I, I under I understand that I'm uncomfortable, I understand that I might be in pain, but it's okay. This is all part of the process. Yeah, and I'm going to get through it. And and teaching them, too, that there's two different kinds of pain. There's the pain of, you know, of, wow, I'm really worn out and I'm really tired and these muscles are, are want to give out on me. And then there's the pain of, you know, I have I have something wrong with my knee or something wrong yeah. with my ankle. Then that's the kind of pain that we probably shouldn't run through. <laughs> <laughs> right. You mentioned that you were also taught journalism, which, again, I would be remiss not to mention as a journalist. 
And I saw that you were also, at some point, the faculty advisor for, like, the student newspaper at DeKalb High School, right? Right, that's right. And, and again, for people that may not be aware of, of DeKalb as much and that you DeKalb is the barbs because, you know, one of the very important people in the history of the city in, literally invented barbed wire. The name of the newspaper, and I just found this out when I was researching and, and like Googling your name and stuff. And I'm so glad that I found it and kind of disappointed in myself that I didn't know before that the student news publication there is called The Barb Wire. Which is right. just so perfect. Like that's 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 a dad joke. That's fantastic. <laughs> Guilty. Guilty. Yeah. We we had a it was called the barblet before I got there. Awful. Come on, the barbed wire is right there. Yeah, I don't know what a barb first of all, I told the kids, I don't really know what a barblet is. Do you any of you guys know what a barblet is? Nobody knew. That makes it sound like it's like a baby a baby barbed wire. A baby like, what barb, yeah. And I in? thought, well, it doesn't really say much about us and I said, you guys realize back in the old days of journalism, there was the wire. You know, there was the news wire, the news piece. It's the source of news for a particular organization or publication was the wire, the AP wire, you know, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And I said, so why don't we, we're the barbs. Why don't we be the barb wire? So you are the person that we can thank for this dad joke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if I have any legacy to this <laughs> it's a dumb dad joke that names the newspaper. So I asked the kids, can we, can we just call it the barbed wire? And they said, yeah, let's do that. And uh, I just thought it made more sense. What was one of your favorite parts about teaching journalism and working with the student news and all that? Because I actually, my high school, I went, actually in DeKalb County, I went to Sandwich High School. Oh, you and, did? Okay, yeah. But I don't think that we had like a student newspaper in high school, and it wasn't even something that was really on my radar, so maybe I just missed it. But I actually didn't even get involved in, in news until I was in college, and my college student newspaper and radio was, was so indelible to my time there that I'm, I'm fascinated to what your experience was with high schoolers. Yeah, I, I loved it. I, I, the, again, talking about kids coming alive with an experience, I, I felt and I still feel that reporting the news accurately, objectively, and responsibly is, you know, I know this sounds super corny, but it's, it's a cornerstone of American society, you know, and I'm, I'm very, very worried about the current state of journalism in America. But again, that's probably a discussion for another day, but uh, you're not, you're not alone though. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun and, and so gratifying to watch kids learn what, first of all, what news is and, and isn't, and then why it's important to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. And then to see their, their reporting and their writing get published and get distributed and, and have their friends holding a newspaper in their hands as they walk down the hallway and, and know that they wrote the stuff in that paper. It was, it was such a wonderful experience to see and to see the pride the kids took in the, in the publication and they wanted it to come out on time. They wanted it to be well published. They wanted it to, to tell the stories that mattered to them. I had a, uh, I had a, um, <laughs> a superintendent who will remain nameless who uh, one, of my, one of my students uh, went to him about an incident that had happened at school uh, the previous week. And she kind of put his feet to the fire a little bit about the way, uh, I said superintendent, I'm sorry, it was, it was a principal. Um, she kind of put his feet to the fire about the way it had been uh, handled. Why, I love it. The issue was handled and the, and the situation. And she was right. Um, there, there, were some, there were some blunders, okay? And he came to me later and said, you realize she was, she was, really challenging me she was really i I don't know if you remember remember if he said disrespectful or or or, uh insolent or some some kind of word that indicated to me that she had done a great job (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and i said well 
I said, you know, I kind of teach her to do that. I want her to find out why this happened, and I want her to go to the people who can tell her. And in this case, it was you. And, and uh, I, don't, I, I said, I don't want her to think that she, uh, when, when journalism class is over and she goes back into math class, that she gets to do that to every adult because she's wearing her reporter's hat when she does it. So there's a time and place for everything. But um, I was, I was kind of tickled <laughs> that she had, you know, that she had done this and uh, she knew where the story was and she went and got it. Oh, absolutely. You know, speaking from some experience too in student media, some of the best feelings, right, is, you know, the, the, the administration starting to get a little uncomfortable <laughs> A little uncomfortable with it, especially while the while they're you know they're promoting oh we we've got this this really rich journalism department and then when it starts to come at them they're like wait a minute where's the respect <laughs> that's hilarious wait a minute no you can't talk to me that way um, yeah and uh, and I always try to tell them yeah you should be professional you should be polite you should be respectful but um, if it's a tough question you have to ask it um, and you got to wait for the answer you know and and try to get after it so uh, that was pretty cool yeah and also I think that. For kids, and again, I didn't get this experience until I was in college and even later on in college, but it's got to be really fascinating for younger kids in high school, but just crafting the ability to talk to strangers and really and to be able to talk to people. It is, is so wonderful. hard for high school kids. They don't want to go up to someone. They, I, I, always, I was constantly telling them when they were shooting the photos for their article, get closer, get closer. If you have to walk out onto the basketball court during the pep rally, walk out on the court in front of everybody, but everybody's looking at me. Yes. You have the camera, go get the photo, go get the interview, stand up there, talk to the, Oh gosh, was it hard for so many kids? Oh, I, I remember in college, there were people that were afraid to talk to strangers, even like other students. And I was like, yeah, well, you do realize that this is like 90% of what you do if you pursue this. Right. (laughs) And like, I, I know so many people that would rather like walk 50 miles on ice than like cold call a stranger and you're like listen that's part of the job like i do that every single day (laughs) yeah it would be almost like saying i'd love to be a veterinarian but i'm afraid of animals right but the whole fur thing makes me uncomfortable (laughs) right you know and and if if that's true and you can't get over that then you're not going to be a journalist well i want to kind of wind down on you but i've got a couple more questions for you and one of them is you know I, i mentioned earlier that this is a show where all of the educators we have on are, are nominated by the audience. And overwhelmingly, when I talk to teachers, they have had at some point in their education journey a teacher along the line that inspired them or made them want to go into education themselves. So I'm curious, at any point you know, during school for you, did you have a teacher that made you want to be a teacher? I, I would guess that the quick, the first name that popped into my mind as I heard you starting to craft that question was Dr. Lacanto. Bob Lacanto was my journalism teacher, broadcast journalism teacher at NIU. I didn't go into college to be a teacher. I went into college to be a broadcast journalist. And uh, it wasn't until the 11th hour that I switched and decided I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to do something else. Um, but he was this, just this uh, wise, engaging he was very demanding, but yet very fair a guy. And he knew the nuts and bolts of journalism like nobody's business. You know, he came at it from the old school way, but you could tell that his approach was going to work no matter when. It would work in 100 years from now, 200 years from now. And, and what we were just talking about, go up to someone, put the camera up in their face and, and, and firmly but politely get the story. And uh, it, it was such a great uh, experience working under him. That when I did decide to switch, I, I had to go to him and say, Doc, I'm not going to take that internship at WIFR in Rockford. 
And he said, oh, you're not. And I said, no, I, I, I think I'm going to go into teaching. And I said, I know that's, uh, that's you know, hard for me to, to tell you because I've, I've come so far with what you've taught me. Um, I didn't want you to be disappointed in me. And he said, well, Kevin, look what I'm doing. I'm a teacher. So, <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. What a great guy. But, yeah, Doc Lacanto uh, at NIU, he's passed away now, but uh, was, was, was truly inspirational for me, yeah. So what made you want to go into teaching then? Well, I learned that the, the life of a journalist was interesting and compelling and, and engaging, but it was also very, very, uh, to, for example, in, in TV news, let's say I'd gotten that internship in Rockford, and there are 273 TV markets in America. And Rockford might be, let's say, you know, 206, I don't know, 185, whatever they are. And as you would get farther along in your career, you would move to Spokane and you'd mm-hmm. move to Wichita and you'd move to Boston and you'd move to San Antonio and you'd move, you know, and you'd be doing the late night protest downtown and you'd be doing the Saturday morning this and the Sunday night that and basically was not a really great fit for what I had decided was going to be my family life. I had met my now wife of 30 plus years. And uh, we wanted to settle down and start a family. And I said, this doesn't seem like it's going to really <laughs> work. Not an accommodating field. And uh, I said, but what else would I do? I don't know what else I can do. And my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, said, well, what about being a teacher? You like to talk to people? You like kids? And I said, teacher? That's a, that's a weird idea. That's a strange. <laughs> I guess. All right. I guess I could, you know, I'll, I'll go find out about it. And it worked out really well. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I'm glad that we could, not only that you could come full circle substituting at the place you started, but I'm glad that I could bring you on to the radio here and on to podcasting right now. Yeah. Well, one of the last questions I have for you, and this is something that we like to end all of our conversations on, and and, and to finish up, we'll we'll bring it back to substituting where we started, which is, you know, uh, there's been so many reports, and actually on this show we've covered the shortage of substitute teachers quite a bit and talk to folks about it. And, you know, overwhelmingly, like, everyone in education agrees that, like, substitute teachers are vastly unappreciated. And for you, I just want to ask, is there something about substitute teaching, about being a substitute, that you just wish more people knew about or talked about? Wow, that's a great question that I wish more people knew or talked about. I, I think that I could answer that two ways. One would be that by being a substitute teacher and seeing what goes on in a school, whether it's a middle school, high school, or whatever, they'll get to really understand and, and appreciate what education is for all these kids, you know, what, a, what, a, what an important function it plays in their lives, not just to get them ready for college and life beyond, but um, just their general development and growth as people, you know. They would get to see what a, what a, what a big deal public school is for kids. And the other thing I, I guess I could say is that as, as a retired teacher, because that's the only way I could have approached this, is, you know, I, I had my teaching career, and then now I'm, now I'm doing it uh, post-retirement. I, I never realized how many, <laughs> how many people go into making a, a student's education a success. You know, how many different teachers they have, how many different coaches, how many different administrators affect their lives. I mean, I knew it, you know, intellectually. I could count the, you know, the people walking around the building, but... I didn't, I didn't think about how many people in, in, interact with, impact uh, a kid's uh, upbringing, and that every person that crosses that kid's path can have, can have a positive impact on, on that kid's life. And it's, and it's every day in the smallest ways, you know, the seemingly insignificant ways. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a perfect place to to end it for us. Then that, that was really nice. And Kevin, thanks so much for jumping on. I had I had, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed the conversation too. I I enjoyed it tremendously, Peter. I thank you for calling me, and and uh, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for listening to Teachers Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show, and it's how we get tremendous guests like Kevin Beverly. Send them our way. The email is teacherslounge at niu.edu, and wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe or leave us a rating or share with your friends, share with a teacher you know, share with a parent with kids. It really does help and get more people to subscribe to the show and get more teachers on the show. You can also subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at WNIJ.org. A big hearty thank you to the Northern Illinois Band Kind Ofs for the music in every single episode you've heard. Thank you to Spencer Tritt for our Teacher's Lounge logo and for helping out behind the scenes. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.